Screw him. I'm going to get my money, Johnny thought to himself as he worked up the courage to go to confront his boss about giving him his final paycheck. He was in a shit mood because his father, Marco, was furious that he had quit his job and they had gotten into a huge fight about it. His old man had kicked him out of the house and even worse, had told him that he couldn't move into the apartment in a building that the family owned that he had just finished remodeling. He was not in the mood for taking any more shit from anyone. He had planned to pick up three of his buddies as backup before he went over to his boss's house, just in case shit got heated because when it came to money, this guy was a stingy son of a bitch. Johnny told his mother that he was going to get his last paycheck from his boss's house as he left the family home. He jumped into his 68 Dodge Coronet station wagon, which he had recently got a custom paint job on, black with gold racing stripes, tough. Johnny scooped up his buddies who had been waiting on him to arrive. They sparked up a joint, cranked the tunes, and off they went to 8213 Somerdale in Norwood Park to collect his dough. They parked out front and they all piled out and followed Johnny to the side door of the kitchen because John wouldn't answer the front door, ever. That was one of his rules. Fucking weirdo, Johnny thought to himself. He pounded on the storm door. They all went in, following Johnny, as he was very familiar with the house because he had been working for PDM for about over a year. They walked through the kitchen into the dining room. John was stationed behind the tiki-style bar that was stocked to the hilt. Welcome, boys. What can I get you to drink? He poured all the boys' cocktails and suggested they play some pool. Johnny was irritated with this act, like everything was all right. John knew exactly why he was here. He wanted his damn money. I need my money, John. My old man just kicked me out of the house and took away my damn apartment. The fat bastard looked at Johnny and said, looks like you picked a shitty time to quit working for me, huh, Johnny? Johnny could feel the heat in his cheeks rise to the surface as his face turned red with rage. Fuck you, John. I earned that money and I ain't leaving until I get it, he yelled as he stepped in towards his boss, leaving him nearly nose to nose with him. John took a step back and he calmly replied, relax, kid, we'll work it out. For now, let's just have a little fun. I'll take care of you, I promise. Johnny inhaled deeply through his nostrils and released an exasperated breath out of his mouth. (sighs) Fine, but I need my money. John walked back behind the bar and pulled a small wooden box out from underneath and he placed it on the lacquered countertop. He opened the lid and pulled out a joint, fired it up and then motioned towards Johnny for him to come and grab it which he did. He puffed and passed it to his buddies, who all did the same, with the joint ending up back in Gacy's hand. After a couple of hours, Johnny's friends were getting restless and frankly getting tired of Johnny's boss continually giving them the once over and told Johnny they wanted to take off. Johnny looked at Gacy and said, look, this has been great and all, but can I get that check? We gotta go. Gacy looked at the kid. He'd always liked him. He was a good worker but he hadn't been interested in messing around, save for the one blowjob he gave the kid, but he hadn't been into it, so he hadn't pushed him with it. But there was no fucking way he was writing this kid a check. Here's the thing, kid. You owe me 325 for that carpet we laid in that apartment of yours. And until you pay me that money, I ain't giving you shit. Fuck you, John. You can get that money from my old man. It's his damn apartment, not mine. Nah. See, when we laid the carpet, it was your apartment. I can't help you fuck that all up with your dad. That's your problem, not mine. All I know is that I'm currently out 325. And what kind of businessman would I be if I paid you out, being owed money like I am? Johnny charged towards Gacy and stopped only when they were chest to chest. You're gonna pay me the goddamn money or I'm gonna kill you, you son of a bitch. Gacy once again stepped back and took a full measure of the kid and thought to himself, you're a lucky, lucky boy that you have your little friends here. Hey, you may want to grab your friend here, fellas, before I call the cops and you'll be spending the night bailing his ass out of jail. One of his friends came up behind him and grabbed one of his arms, which Johnny proceeded to rip out of his grasp. Fuck it, let's go. 
He parted his frowns and stormed towards the door in the kitchen, forcing it open with a mighty push. I'm gonna get my fucking money, asshole. Just you watch, he yelled behind him as he exited Gacy's home with his friends in tow. The boys all piled back into the Dodge. Johnny started pounding the steering wheel with his palms and screamed, I'm gonna kill that motherfucker! With that, he started the car and gunned it, leaving a cloud of burnt rubber in the car's wake. We're going to the lake, he angrily informed his friends. That young man was John Johnny Bukovich, born September 16th, 1956, in Nova Capella, Croatia. July 31st of 1975 was the last time that Johnny would ever be seen by his family, by his friends, by anyone. He was strangled to death and buried in Gacy's garage. His grave was covered with fresh concrete. Johnny's father, Marco, called the Chicago police twice a week for two years after he went missing, pleading for the police to look into Johnny's former boss regarding his son's disappearance. The Chicago police, they did nothing. Nothing. Johnny Bukovich was John Wayne Gacy's second known victim. I ran into Bukovich on Lawrence. No, I ran into him actually first. I spotted his car down at the Forest Avenue at the Lawrence Avenue exit. Then he had stopped his car at Sheridan and Lawrence. And I pull up, I, I double parked and I bring parked the car. And I stopped. And he asked me what I was doing. I said, I just out cruising around. He said, I'll ride with you. Now, this is after we had just had an argument less than an hour ago. Two, three hours ago. Okay. This had to be around one o'clock in the morning. He got into my car. He got into my car. We drove around for a while. Then he wanted something to drink. So I said, well, instead of spending any money, let's go out to my house. We went back out to my house. We drank some more. In your car? In my car. We drank some more. <clears throat> we, we smoked a couple of joints. Uh, I think the handcuffs were behind the bar. Um, then he started talking again about me, that he did kick my hand. Because he was, he, was, he was telling me about his problems with his dad and that he needed the fucking money. I said, well, that's fine. I said, I, who's going to pay for the goddamn parking? He said, well, just one third of them. The apartment and shit like that. Fuck no. I said, you know, you, you're sticking me for $325 and then you want me to give you a check for $160. What was the argument about initially? He had left because he had gotten into it with his dad and his dad took the apartment away from him. With his dad taking the apartment away from him, but now, meanwhile, the day before, he had just gotten into a fight down on Halsted and Ohio Street. No, on Halsted and Ohio. Halsted uh, and, uh, and Clinton or somewhere in that area. They had, they had gotten into an argument. In fact, they beat up somebody with a pool stick. They? You mean him and his friends? The, the Puerto Rican buddies. Yes. Yeah. And... Uh, he wanted to get out of town because they were going to come and get him. That's why he wasn't going home. His dad had kicked him out of the house. His dad had kicked him out of the apartment. Told him that he was no good and all that shit. And wanted to get rid of him. You know, just get out. I told him somebody's going to have to pay for the carpeting. He charged the carpeting to me, you know. And uh, then his father took the apartment back from him to rent it out. And then he was going to not pay for the carpeting, which was $325. He had a check coming of, uh, I believe, $125 to $150, somewhere in there. He wanted his check. And he said, I can get the carpeting back from his dad. I said, like hell. And I'm going to go argue with your dad. So then he was he got into an argument with me. That's what the argument was. The same argument was expressed to his dad. And his dad knows it, even to this day. John knew he couldn't get his check until he paid the $325. Because I told his dad... Then his dad says, well, this was after John disappeared. He said, give me his, make, he said, the hell with John, make the check out to Marco. Like hell I am. I said, are you going to pay me for the carpeting first? 
or so, or I'm going to take the carpeting out. He said, no, you're not. You don't get no carpeting. You know, and it's broken English. So when you got back to the apartment, then, no, we were back to my house. Your house. I'm sorry. We're drinking, and we got into a fight, and then about the same thing, basically. It felt like he wanted to fight again. So we were fucking around, arguing back and forth, and. Uh, I talked him into putting the handcuffs on. Once he got the handcuffs on, I pinned him down, and I told him, I said, man, you might as well settle down and get it straight for once and for all, because I am not going to give him you a check. I thought, I'm going to ship what the hell you do. Uh, and then he said, let me up, let me up. I said, let me up until I get done explaining it. I said, you know, goddamn well, you owe me for the carpeting. You're not getting your money until I get mine. And then he told me, that if I didn't let him up, or when I if I would let him up, he'd kill me. Threaten to kill me. He said, if I get loose, I'll kill you. He says, because he had nothing to lose. I said, well, if that if that's the way you think it, then it's either you or me. I am assuming from that point forward, I don't remember. If I killed him or I just left him on the floor. I do know that he was dead. When do you remember him being dead? Around 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning when he came out of my bed. He was still laying on the living room floor. Did he have his clothes on? Yep. Were his hands still handcuffed? Yep. In back of him or in front of him? In back. When he was dressed? Yeah. How was he? Killed? I don't know. <coughs> I don't Manor. know if they found him with his clothes on or off. I don't know if I took his clothes off to bury him or buried him with his clothes on. How was he killed? There was a rope on his head. He was not sexually molested. See, John and I had only gotten in, John and I had only gotten into it one time. It was oral copulation. That's all we ever got into once. He didn't like it. He didn't want to no part of it. Tell me what, what you did with Barkovich then you woke up and you found him dead. Take one out to the ground and brought in a canvas and put him on a canvas. Then I dragged him from the house right out in the yard out to the garage. During the day or night? During the afternoon. Just buried him in the garage. I dragged him into the garage and then uh, that section in the back garage, I had to dig the hole deeper. Hey y'all, Bob here. So I just want to let you guys know why I love Nom Nom, the sponsor of the show. That's because our dog, Nanook, who's been an intricate part of our family for the last four years, is the pickiest eater out of any dog on the planet. We would give him the best of the best in terms of dry food, and the guy just was not having it. That all changed when the first box of Nom Nom came to our house. I cut open the package. I like to treat him a little bit, so I heat it up just a little bit, put it in a bowl, gone instantly every single time the dude loves nom nom i can tell by the way he just devours it because i've never seen him eat like that before and the reason that he loves it is because that nom noms made with real wholesome ingredients that you can see when you pour it into the bowl it's like you can actually see the meat you can see the vegetables it's unbelievable and they personalize it to your dog's needs so it brings out their very best I mean, this guy has boundless energy these days. I bring him out on his walks and he's doing all the things that he loves to do. He's running and jumping and playing, tails going a million miles an hour. It's an amazing product and it really has changed our dog's life. And our dog is such a huge, huge part of our life. It makes me feel good about what we've been able to do for him. So I cannot recommend more. If you have a dog in your life, treat them. Treat them like the king or the queen that they are in your family and go right now for 50% off for your no risk two week trial at nom.com slash DD. 
That is nom.com slash DD for 50% off with a guaranteed return if your dog doesn't love it. And I can guarantee you, you're not going to be returning anything. Again, that is nom.com slash DD for 50% off. You can thank me later. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 13. Undiscovered. As you may have noticed in the past two episodes, we have begun with describing the circumstances under which Gacy's first two victims fell into his evil clutches. As we said earlier on this podcast, we are going to focus on the victims. In terms of the narrative, now is the time for that to happen. We also stated that it is our sincere hope that as the podcast becomes more widely heard, that someone, somewhere out there, has knowledge of a young man that went missing between the years of 1972 and 1978, and that they will reach out because six of Gacy's known victims remain unidentified to this day. Starting in the next episode, we will be providing a toll-free number for a tip line that we have created in order to provide a safe haven for those out there that may have information and for whatever reason have not shared it up until this point. Any information provided to us will be directly forwarded to the Cook County Sheriff's Department as they have an open investigation regarding the still nameless victims. So please spread the word. We left off last episode having heard Gacy's first statement to the Delta unit. While this was going on in one of the tiny investigation rooms of the Desplaines Police Department, Terry Sullivan was realizing that this case was much bigger than one missing youth. So much so that he knew that it was time for him to reach out to the big boys, the first district, to let them know exactly what was going on. The man that he called in the early morning hours of December 22nd was Bill Kunkel. And this is what he recalls from that fateful night. So the first notification was actually to me personally on Thursday night, uh, the night that Gacy was arrested, uh, the 20th, and then the statements come in the early morning hours of the 21st. That was, for years, I was thinking that was a Friday because that was the night of the 26th Street trial lawyers, uh, trial prosecutors of the Christmas party at Marconi's. And that's where I had been with my wife. And, of course, uh, she had to drive home because uh, not a a good uh, wine with dinner at that place, not to mention drinks. And uh, so it was quite late when we got home. And I was uh, about an hour into sleeping off uh, the pain in my skull from that uh, uh, excellent party. And uh, the phone rings, and it's Terry Sullivan, and he uh, is, I'm, I'm a little foggy to say the least, and he's talking about uh, 33 people being killed, or 30-some people, and bodies in a basement, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, good pimp, Terry, and I hung up. And the phone rings again, and now I'm listening. And uh, as I gathered my faculties, I I discussed it with him, and I asked him to put Dr. Stein on the phone, who was there by now. This is like 1 or 2 in the morning, I think. And uh, I talked to Dr. Stein, and... He really didn't want to proceed further at the scene until he had had a chance to consult with uh, Dr. Clyde Snow, who I knew well, who was a forensic anthropologist at the University of Oklahoma and a national figure in uh, that field. And he wanted advice from uh, Clyde as far as what what they should do in terms of uh, handling the scene and... uh, that's why, if you look at the pictures of the crawl space, uh, uh, improperly uh, described by the media in one of the recent flurry of, uh, I can't believe the number of documentaries that are going on and so on. But in any event, yeah, no, hopefully it's over. But uh, it's been going on for two and a half years. Uh, 
Anyway, uh, since the 40th anniversary, I could understand a little blip at the 40th anniversary, but why it's still going on uh, beyond me. But in any event, the uh, I guess because of some of the fabricated stuff is being put out about uh, new issues that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, don't exist. But in any event, uh, so finally I talked to uh, uh, Dr. Stein, as I said, and we agreed. Oh, I was going to tell you though, what what happened with the uh, the site is one of the things that Clyde Snow suggested was uh, gritting it off the same way that you do an archaeological dig, and you put a line every three or four or five. I think they chose four feet. But I can't recall for sure. But in any event, you put uh, markers. In this case, they used orange spray paint on a big vertical line up the side of the inside of the foundation uh, every four feet. And then it would be labeled, you know, N1 for one four-foot mark north of the corner, N2, N3, and so forth, and then east and then west, uh, south and west. And then by using a sight line from those marks or a tape, uh, whatever, you can then locate any particular piece of jewelry or a bone or a piece of clothing or whatever piece of evidence uh, you're recovering uh, and putting into a bag, either to go to the morgue or to the lab or wherever, by a specific location within that grid. Uh, It was very important because at that point, obviously, we had only one potential uh, unidentified victim, Robert Peast, but of course it turned out he wasn't in the crawl space. So there really were no, at that point, no identifiable, at least at that time, victims in the crawl space. So we were had to be dealing and thinking about immediately a trial where you don't know the identity of remains because there are only skeletal remains that have been in the earth for some time. So once the call to Bill Kunkel was made, the Gacy case made its way into his very capable hands. Now, Bill Kunkel was the second person involved with the case that we interviewed. And that interview took place before we had spoken with Albrecht, Hackmeister, and Robinson, which means that it took place before we uncovered the planted photo receipt. Now, the reason I mention this is because this is how our first conversation with Bill Kunkel began. Well, that, that's unfortunately uh, one of the few negative aspects of the of the history. Uh, uh, when Peace, Robert Peace, the last victim, disappeared, uh, that individual case, uh, obviously as it existed on the first day or two, uh, was not something that necessarily uh, should have gone outside the district. Now, the the municipal division of the state's attorney's office uh, at that time and still uh, includes the first municipal district, uh, which is the city of Chicago, uh, but just at up to the pretrial level. In the suburbs, uh, it controls uh, all phases of cases that originate in a suburban court uh, house area. Uh, and they were generally remain there unless security or other reasons uh, move it to 26th Street. <clears throat> now, this case was in an area that the uh, supervisor of which was uh, Terry Sullivan, who ultimately was a member of the trial team and my third chair in the case. But at the time, uh, the police investigation being carried out by Des Plaines and uh, additionally by the Cook County Sheriff, who was developing, uh, again, there was no particular reason that that would have been reported up the chain of command as uh, a single victim of a disappearance. But when it became obvious that it was probably a murder of that victim, 
and additionally that there were quite possibly additional victims uh, besides that uh, one victim, which was pretty apparent to the Des Plaines police and the sheriff, uh, and uh, presumably to the state's attorney's office uh, at that local district, uh, within, I would say, two or three days at the most from peace disappearance. It really should have been a communicated up the chain to uh, Greg Janex, the chief of the municipal division, who would have then spoken with Mike Ficaro, the chief of the uh, criminal division, who would have certainly come to me and the first assistant and the state's attorney, um, because it was obvious we were looking at something that could very well be a multiple homicide or and or a serial killer. And uh, that didn't happen. So the front office, so to speak, never became aware of what was going on up in Des Plaines and at the unincorporated area around 8213 Somerdale at Casey's home uh, until uh, the night when after Gacy's arrest when they executed a second search warrant and began to discover human remains in more than one location in the crawl space. Unfortunately, uh, no one was notified uh, throughout the course of the first 10 days of the investigation. And in fact, um, even though Gacy had filed a lawsuit in uh, federal court trying to bar uh, and seek damages from the Cook County Sheriff and the Des Plaines Police and the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, uh, for harassing Gacy by the surveillance. Now, quite frankly, I don't know how we weren't aware of that as a result of the civil uh, division's responsibilities for that kind of a lawsuit, but it probably hadn't reached the stage where they had actually received a notice uh, of any kind from the court. So... Again, the, the, the district was aware of it, and uh, even with that happening, uh, there was no notification. It wasn't us. Only the, only the district was working on this. So as far as I know, the only two assistant state's attorneys that could have possibly seen or reviewed or approved that warrant were uh, Terry Sullivan and uh, Larry Finder. The judge said he was being kind when Garippo said uh, it was inartfully drafted. That's an understatement as far as I'm concerned. Now, at the time of that interview, we didn't understand why Kunkel was so adamant about making it crystal clear that he was in no way, shape, or form involved with any part of the investigation into Gacy, and was equally adamant that not only was he not involved, but that he didn't even know that it was going on. Bill Kunkel has given us no reason not to believe him, and he availed himself to us without hesitation when we requested to interview him. That, in and of itself, goes a long way in terms of establishing credibility, in my mind. So once the disclosures started rolling in about the photo receipt, it became very clear very quickly to Darren and I exactly why Kunkel had said what he had said to us. Remember, we have stated unequivocally that we don't believe for one moment that Kunkel had knowledge on the front end of the malfeasance that had taken place over in Des Plaines. But to think that he wasn't made aware of it after the fact seems damn near impossible. Let's say for argument's sake that Kunkel becomes aware of it, the question becomes, what in the hell is he supposed to do with it? What an absolutely impossible position to be put in. Essentially, there are two choices. A Hobson's choice, really. Either he discloses it to the defense, and with that, the entire case against Gacy disappears like a fart in the wind. Or he decides to tell Sullivan that this is his fucking mess, so he better deal with it. And he never wants to hear about it again. So yeah, there's only really one choice. And it's easy to sit here 40 years later and armchair quarterback the shit out of this case and how it was handled. But imagine being in Bill Kunkel's shoes and learning about this after it's too damn late to do anything about it other 
than to bury it. Man, heavy is the head that wears the crown. So you may be wondering out there, why is it that we bring this point up? I mean, it's clear that Kunkel would have had zero options other than to handle it the way that he did. He protected his people, and more importantly, he protected his case. And even more importantly, he protected the victim's families. But that's not why this particular issue has been sticking in my craw. Now, it's been driving me absolutely crazy trying to reconcile how my father could have missed that damn evidence log of Humbert's that was so blatantly missing the photo receipt. I mean, I know objectively what type of attorney my father was and is, and that is diligent and thorough. I've been through a war with him long after his prime, and he was still on top of his game, as he always had been. I just couldn't make heads or tails of it until he came back and I interviewed him for the first time since the planted evidence had become public knowledge. And there it was, shining like a piece of gold, Humbert's evidence log. I picked it up and I handed it to him. He studied it carefully, and after a few minutes, he handed it back to me. I asked him one singular question in regards to that sheet. I said, Dad, have you ever seen this document before? I don't remember it. Setting the insanity defense aside, we proceeded along the lines of defending a criminal case. No matter how many prongs it had, we poured over every single piece of paper looking for the typical things you would look for in any criminal case, contradictions, omissions. So maybe I missed it. I don't know. I don't remember that uh, evidence tech report. I mean, I would remember that. So that was it. I had my answer. My father and Sam hadn't missed it at all. Because, well, you can't miss something that you don't know exists. If I'm being too cryptic, let me clarify. Simply put, the state never tendered the Humbert log over to the defense during discovery. Now, are you wondering, Bob, what in the hell is discovery? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because it's your favorite time, and it's my favorite time. It's definition time. Definition time! The term discovery in the context of the law is as follows. Black's Law Dictionary defines discovery as, in a general sense, the ascertainment of that which is previously unknown, the disclosure or coming to light of what was previously hidden, or the acquisition of notice or knowledge of given acts or fact. Okay, now in plain English. It's the formal process of exchanging or the disclosure of information between the parties about the witnesses and the evidence that each side will present at trial. What discovery does is that it enables the parties to know before the trial begins what evidence may be presented. Discovery takes three basic forms, written discovery, document production, and depositions. Now in Illinois, depositions cannot be taken, generally speaking, in a criminal case. So that leaves written discovery and document production. The only thing that is off the table is privileged information, such as attorney's notes and memoranda. What this means is that the state and the defense have to turn over each and every item, whether it be a written report or a document prepared in anticipation of trial. This is called reciprocal discovery. In a criminal case, this will typically include all of the police reports, witness statements, photographs, recordings of statements of witnesses and or the defendant, video recordings, lab reports, expert witness reports, DNA results, ballistics reports, blood, hair, and fiber sample reports, fingerprint results, and the list goes on and on. 
The bottom line is that anything and everything that either party intends to introduce a trial into evidence has to be produced to the other side prior to trial. This is done so as to avoid trial by ambush. These disclosures are made by the state's attorneys and the defense attorneys. Obviously, as far as the state is concerned, a majority of the discovery that they tender to the defense is procured from the investigating law enforcement agency. In this case, that would have been the Displains Police Department. As far as the defense goes, whatever they turn up in their investigation, they have to turn over to the state as well. For instance, if the defense digs up a witness that provides an exculpatory statement that would tend to prove the defendant's innocence, they can't hold that back like an ace up their sleeve and surprise the state at trial. It must be produced beforehand. Now, that only happens in movies and TV. So if either side fails to disclose evidence before trial, there's a very high likelihood that that particular piece of evidence will be barred from being introduced at trial. Now, there's occasions where either the state or the defense may discover new evidence at the 11th hour. And in these situations, the court will give the receiving party the opportunity to investigate, oftentimes resulting in a continuance of the trial. Now, we had told you previously that the police are not preparing their reports contemporaneously to their investigation. Instead, these reports are typically generated weeks, sometimes months, after the investigation has already occurred. Once these reports are completed by the reporting officers and signed off by their supervisors, they are sent over to the state's attorney's office. The state's attorney's office then prepares a discovery package and provides it to the defense. It's common practice for discovery not to be tendered all at one time, but rather in a piecemeal fashion via multiple disclosures that take place over several months. For instance, police reports may be finished long before lab results are completed. So the state will turn over the police reports, and when they finally receive the reports from the lab, they'll turn those over as well. So in the Gacy case, that is exactly what happened. The discovery to the defense filtered in over the course of 12 months. Now the real question that is presented is whether the Displains police withheld the Humbert report from the state or whether it was the state that withheld the report from the defense. Remember that Humbert was not Displains PD. He was Cook County Sheriff's police, which means that his report was drafted at his station and would have eventually been turned over to Displains in order to be tendered in discovery. Once it left Humbert's hands, he had no obligation to follow up, and he would have just assumed that the report would be turned over with all the rest of the reports. That did not occur, ever. Now the question becomes, who in the hell fucked up and let that smoking gun end up in our hands? Because I assure you, Humbert's report was never supposed to be seen by prying eyes. Now you may be asking, is there any way to verify what was sent to the defense and what wasn't? And the answer is this. There are only two sources that exist to do so. The state's attorney's file, which after this podcast, we have a 0% chance of getting in our hands, and the defense attorney's file, which after this podcast, we have a 0% chance of getting in our hands. Well, maybe that's not true. But the last I had heard, Sam Amaranti informed me that after his book was written, that his entire file was misplaced. And boy, that's a real shame. We will be coming back to this discovery issue as there is much more that we need to discuss, particularly in trying to dig in and determine who in fact withheld that report because there is a massive difference in the potential outcome depending on whether it was the cops not giving it to the state or the state not giving it to the defense. But that discussion is for a later episode. So let's jump back in where we left off last episode, which was with Gacy making multiple seemingly incriminating statements about his involvement with Robbie Peace's murder and what sounded like many others. But I don't want to focus on those parts of the statement yet. 
What I do want to focus on is when Gacy asks Albrecht, quote, who else do we have in the police station? There are others involved, end quote. Albrecht then asks him whether they were involved directly or indirectly. Gacy answers directly. They participated in it. Gacy stated that it was several of his associates and mentions both Cram and Rossi. Gacy then specifically asks if Cram is in custody. Instead of asking any follow-up questions about possible accomplices, specifically Cram and Rossi, who all the men in Delta knew were exceptionally close to Gacy, now he moves on immediately to another subject. And I don't understand why. So I asked both Dave Hackmeister and Mike Albrecht now what their opinions are with regard to Cram and Rossi's involvement. That's my opinion, the same as yours, that these kids were too street smart not to know what was happening. And they were getting property, not only the car, they were getting watches, they were getting a variety of other little things that they knew came from previous employees. Yeah, they weren't stupid. And I, I honestly believe, well, I know one of them killed himself, Cram did, yeah. And I'm sure that had to be weighing hard, hard and heavy on him for a long time. I don't believe, I mean, obviously you can be wrong with all this stuff, but I don't believe, number one, that they helped him commit the murders. And number two, I personally don't believe that there were any more than 33. I don't think they were involved in the actual murders. Um, they were digging the trenches in the crawl space. And it's kind of hard to believe that they wouldn't think what's going on here because, I mean, you're digging these trenches and then you don't see any other work going down. If he had other work going on, why wouldn't he have us going to do the work? Because that's why they were doing it, because he couldn't do it anymore. He wasn't strong enough to go down there and dig up that stuff. So they had to have some suspicion. I, I mean, they did that, and then because of the flooding or whatever it is in his crawl space, but they never did the second part of the job. And uh, it was kind of ironic that, um, but when I was in investigation, I had uh, Force Preserve was head of their investigation unit, and for the a year and a half uh, that I had it, we had over 90 death investigations, which was a lot of investigations. I mean, a uh, few murders, a lot of accidentals, you know, on bike paths, whatever, um, and a lot of suicides, tremendous amount of suicides. And so I got a call one morning, on a Saturday morning it was, that uh, we had a suicide over at the bottom of Milwaukee in the woods there. And I said, well, all right, it's a suicide hanging, hung himself, so you handle it and then, uh, you know, let me know what happens. And so I didn't go out on this one for whatever reason. Uh, they get all done. They call me up, and it was David Cram. And I just, oh, what? Because I couldn't, I would have loved to talk with the family, uh, but I, I didn't feel comfortable doing it after the fact now, after they had been notified and all that kind of stuff. But uh, that that was a disappointment I had in that, that I should have gone. And uh, because, I mean, he was a good-looking kid, um, and I'm not that that's what makes you happy or not, but, I mean, he... Um, and in fact, I bought him lunch one time when we were watching Casey. He was uh, in one of the restaurants we went to. Uh, he was there with his girlfriend, and Casey uh, uh, went and sat with them. So I told the waitress to give me their tab, and I mean, it wasn't big, but. Well, if you remember, I mean, one of the first things he said to me after we had him after the arrest was, you know, is anybody else here, you know, and other people involved? And that was the. Uh, came up when we were in that interview room um, where the phone was, the second room we had put him in. And, you know, and I think we were working towards getting more into that. That's when Lang interrupted and told us to stop the interview. And then, you know, to our fault, I guess we never got back into that again because we didn't get down and talk to him until, you know, Amrani and uh, uh, Stevens was there, I think, that night. Um said that Casey wanted to talk to us. Like I mentioned earlier, it was not your typical interrogation because I had three guys sitting on the floor next to me and 
Sam Amrani sit, sitting next to me and then Steven stand up behind that. I'm so, you know, it wasn't this light with the interrogation on him and all that kind of stuff. It was just more conversation than uh, interrogation. And it's, you know, 2020 after the fact type stuff. I mean, you like to go over a lot more things and as it was going and, you know, it's not an excuse for me, but I just wanted to keep it going and there wasn't, any direct focus on this because he was just started talking and I like to say I was shocked, but I, I, I was more just involved in trying to, you know, cause I don't know if I ever showed you my notes that I took from, from that interview going on. And it was just a lot of scribbling and all that kind of stuff, but I would on a legal thing and there's a lot of pages to it. Um, and you're trying to get it. And, you know, I'm, uh, I think maybe after the fact, a little disappointed that I didn't have more focus and more direction given him, um, because, you know, he was very forthcoming with what he was saying. I mean, the detail he, you know, did with what Rob, what he did to Rob Peast and, um, other ones, because I think he knew a, a lot more. He could have told us a lot more, more detailed because what he had was, uh, he knew what he said. I mean, that diagram and it was, I'm sure we could have got good, na got names from him. He was all this. So it's clear that Mike regrets that he wasn't able to flesh out some more questions about Cram and Rossi's involvement. And what exactly did Gacy mean when he stated that they were directly involved? I understand what Mike is saying when he talks about asking the questions and taking the notes and being thrown for a loop. He simply was not prepared either mentally or emotionally to digest what was being thrown at him and Hackmeister at 1.30 a.m. in that little room. And this fact reflects back directly to what I was saying last episode about the fact that these statements were not recorded, which placed Mike squarely in a position where he had to write down as much of what Gacy was saying as he possibly could while he was saying it, then trying somehow to digest what the creep was actually saying, which would have left any one of us absolutely stunned if we were in Albrecht's shoes, and then trying to develop questions to ask him on the fly while doing everything else simultaneously, it was all just too much for Mike. It would be too much for anybody. So the end result is that we are left with gaping holes with respect to Cram and Rossi and what they may or may not have done or what they knew or didn't know. I can tell you this, we will be digging into Cram and Rossi hard in the second season because they have always seemed to me to be a very crucial part of the Gacy story and one that has been grossly underdeveloped by anyone who has taken this case on in the past. My bottom line has always been that there is simply no way that those two guys who both lived with Gacy during the period of time when he killed the most victims, didn't participate in some fashion. The saddest aspect to this is that we may never know, which if in fact they were involved, would be a travesty of epic proportions. Now, if you're sitting there listening and wonder if Mike Rossi is still alive, the answer is yes. If you're also curious if we're going to try and interview him, the answer to that question is also yes. Now, if you're dying to know if you will actually speak with us, well, only time will tell. Part of the challenge for any deep dive into any case is that when you start uncovering things that people believed were dead and buried, people that could be exposed in one way or another, well, they're very quick to make themselves scarce. But fear not, we shall endeavor to persevere. Let's get started trying to decipher the rest of Gacy's initial statement on the next episode of Defense Diaries. If you guys are picking up what we are putting down on a weekly basis, well, know this, we love doing it for you. But know this also, we need your support in a couple of different ways. 
One, by joining the defense team at www.patreon.com backslash defense diaries and contributing whatever you can to help us so that we can keep producing this podcast. And I assure you that season two of the Gacy Tapes is going to require expenditures. We're going to have to hit the road for many reasons. You collectively can help us do that. No amount is too meager. And secondly, as you know, we are independently produced, which means that all of our promotion for our podcast is done in-house on a shoestring budget. And part of the challenge of being an independent is getting the name of the podcast out there to the masses. Because right now, we are in the position that if you don't specifically know the name of our podcast, it is exceptionally difficult to find us. So you can act as our ambassadors of information by spreading the word about our show in real life and on social media, particularly in podcast groups where people ask for recommendations. Because believe me, it means much more coming from you guys than it does from us. Because you are trying to share. We are trying to promote. One carries more weight than the other. Just think of how delighted you were when somebody recommended this pod for you to listen to, and you ended up loving it. You can give that gift to someone. Look at you giving. Also, be sure to rate and review on your favorite platform, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at defensediaries.com, and Twitter at defense underscore diaries, and on our pathetic attempt at TikTok at Defense Diaries Podcast. Finally, as always, thank you for being dedicated listeners. And it really is so fulfilling for both Darren and I to hear from you guys. It truly validates what we are doing. Because without you, I'd just be some old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host Defense Diaries. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Check it out. I'm not faith recovered some human remains. Ah. Uh.